So, Will. Yes? Is Michael Crichton the Dan Brown of science? Um, I'm gonna say no. Okay. The caveat I'm gonna give is the only Dan Brown I have read is The Da Vinci Code, which is a deeply silly book. I would argue much sillier than most of what Michael Crichton has put out. I feel like I may have stuck to his weirdest books, to be honest, which might be why I feel this way. But some of the generalizations about large groups of people being questionable at best can be found within both universes. Uh, True. I read Rising Sun and, oh my god. That book is at best deeply problematic. It treats Japanese people like an alien species. And I don't know if you remember next. I think that Michael Crichton does do more research than Dan Brown does into history. I didn't read next. But that one's about, like, creating a human-chimpanzee hybrid and then raising it or something. I used to mix that one up with Congo a lot when I had not encountered either. They're just both so outlandish. And I like the claims to be researching everything. I think that Dan Brown does a lot less than Michael Crichton does. But some of the things Michael Crichton leaves out do show up, such as how the politics of Central Africa generally work. (laughs) With Dan Brown and, like, doing research, there's a scene in The Da Vinci Code, which I read in the summer of 2016, that just about made me lose my mind that leads me to believe that any research he does is deeply questionable, which is you're like Robert Langdon and his crew bust into the house. Symbologist Robert Langdon. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) They bust into the home of some guy with a library of old books and they need it because like there's some book with some clue about like Mary Magdalene or whatever. Who cares? But they believe in this conspiracy theory. And the old man, who is some kind of, like, eminent scholar, is like, why are you guys coming here with, like, crackpot theories? And then the museum curator lady, who's hooked up with Robert Langdon, is like, wait, wait, wait. You think this conspiracy theory is crazy. But actually, look at this list of books that have been written supporting the conspiracy theory. And this eminent scholar looks at a list of titles and says, oh my god, and is immediately convinced that this thing is true. I think that scholar is Dan Brown. He looked at a list of titles of books and then decided to write a book about it. And, like, that's the thing where, like, there's a lot of crap in Michael Crichton, but, like, it's always clear that he's done a lot of research on whatever he's writing about. I think one of the parts that I found most ridiculous, but also I respected about the Da Vinci Code, is how much of the plot centers around how Twinkie John is. Because the biblical description of John and some of the art paints him as this really pretty young man who's very twinky. And then the fact that he is twinky enough that he might be confused for Mary Magdalene is a central part of the plot. And it makes me laugh every time. Yeah, I'm not sure what the, like, comparably silly thing would be in Crichton. I'm sure there is something. Will. And it's probably in, like, one of the weird books, like Sphere. Congo ends with giant... Trained gorillas guarding the minds of Solomon. Okay, so uh, cards on the table. When we decided to do this back during our Joe versus the Volcano episode, um, I went out and bought the novel Congo by Michael Crichton. (laughs) So I read this for this episode. I read it a long time ago. I think it's very different, if I remember correctly. It is very different from the movie, which I will be able to get into because I read the novel Congo in the year of our (laughs) Lord 2020. It's so much older than I thought, the book. So what was going on there was Michael Crichton had directed, like you've been writing books, but also directed a couple of movies. He directed Westworld. He directed The First Great Train Robbery. And then he sold Fox a pitch for what became Congo. And the original plan was that it would be a Sean Connery vehicle with Sean Connery in the Ernie Hudson role. So he sold it as a movie pitch and a book pitch at the same time. And so he was given a like lump advance as like, okay, you're going to write the movie, you're going to write the book, and you're going to direct the movie. And so then he like goes to write the book to have something to turn into a movie. And they like got pretty far working on it, except he quit the project when it became clear he would not be able to use a real gorilla as Amy. So like the plan was to make this movie in like the early 80s. But it fell apart over the gorilla issue, 
Until then, after Jurassic Park, Frank Marshall is like, cool, let's make another Michael Crichton movie. I feel like the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park look better than the gorilla in this movie, which is a real-world animal that you can have many models for. There are scenes where Amy looks like a child in a hairy gorilla costume. So, the gorillas are designed by Stan Winston's Creature Shop, who's like a legendary, like, movie robot designer. He designed Robocop. Uh, He designed the animatronic dinosaurs for Jurassic Park. And there's a lot of cool stuff on the Creature Shop website about the making of the gorillas for this movie that I'll post on our social media. But he actually has been on the record saying, while he's proud of a lot of the gorillas in this movie, Amy is a mistake because they wanted to make her seem more friendly. So she has a lowland gorilla face on a mountain gorilla body. And that's part of why she looks so funky. Yeah, there is something just off about Amy. Yeah, it is like cool technology where there's a performer in a suit and then it's like a robot gorilla head that they're controlling via radio that can like do this whole range of expressions. That is pretty cool. But there is a person inside some of it. Yeah, um, there are two different uh, ape performers. There's a lot less about the production of this movie on Wikipedia than I was expecting, but I didn't feel like doing any more research than that. Like they didn't talk about the puppet at all. Yeah, for that, I had to go to the Stan Winston website. Also, why don't we quickly start the show? Because we're getting in the weeds on the Okay, hang on. Let me say it uh, first. Like, the weird thing is, so there are two people in the gorilla suit. And one of them is named Peter Elliott. It's the name of, like, an actual, like, gorilla performer. Like, a person who performs as a gorilla. And then Crichton named the character in the book after that and kept it in the movie. So you have a character in this movie named Peter Elliott and a credited performer's real name how do you get a job that is sustainable as just a gorilla performer like how often are gorilla performances called for people love gorillas mark i know but like i don't know how many movies i could name with gorillas and i guess if you have the market cornered there's probably enough That's actually why it was a big deal that Stan Winston got the job for this movie. Because in the 1980s, Rick Baker, who's a legendary makeup designer, who we talked about last week, actually, on Coming to America, he was, like, the king of making people look like gorillas. And he had done it for a bunch of movies in the 70s and 80s. And so Stan Winston was really excited to get this job. And he's like, ah, yes, I can prove that I'm as good as Rick Baker at monkeys. Who did the monkeys in 2001? Was that Rick Baker? That might be too old. Oh, that's 68. Yeah, Rick Baker did do the monkeys in the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes. Okay, the monkeys in that, in, uh, I guess they're not monkeys or apes. They are like hominids in 2001. But those they guys are, look um, very genetically silly. modified gray gorillas. Oh, God. I really want to start talking about the gorillas so let's start the show welcome to we love the love a hollywood romance podcast i'm mark and i'm gay and i'm will and i'm a ginger this is an investigative podcast committed to answering one of the dumbest questions of our day does hollywood romance actually make any sense and why aren't there more movies where laura liddy uses a diamond power laser to attack genetically modified white gorillas and to shoot a satellite (laughs) (laughs) And are these people actually dateable (laughs) or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, which is good because that's what we've got here. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, as said earlier, we're ending the year with a promise fulfilled as we look at the meager romance of Frank Marshall's 1995 sort of hit, Congo. So this movie is like... An hour and 48 minutes long, and it's about an hour and 30 minutes too long because it's really boring until they get to the end where it just becomes insane. Well, the very end is stupid because, like, who cares about the volcano? And that's dumb in the book, too. I'm mostly interested when the genetically modified gray gorillas are hanging around. Yeah, and the lost city of Zinge. Once they discover the city, even though I do think that the beginning gives you enough time for Tim Curry's accent work to really set in (laughs) for you to We've got a lot to do here. We got to talk about Michael Crichton. Uh, We should talk about like the movie in general because there's still more to talk about. But right now, accent corner. What the heck is happening in this movie? Why is only Laura Liddy sounding like a person with a real accent? Okay. So you texted me asking about Ernie Hudson's accent. And this might just be on my brain because we just watched Coming to America. I think he's doing a James Earl Jones voice. I think it's 
almost transatlantic where he's like got British inflections in his accent, but he's American. I think he's the best performance in this movie. I loved watching him, but the whole time it's just unsettling because it's not a bad accent. It's just entirely unplaceable. Whereas Tim Curry's is just doing a bad accent, so you can sit with it and enjoy it. But Ernie Hudson's kind of just confused me at times, and I got used to it. But I was still just so thrown off when he first started speaking. No, he's great. He's, he's our great white hunter, only he happens to be black. That was weird. And then the fact that they included a scene where a uh, indigenous tribe is confused that a black person is in control of a group of white people was very odd. Yeah, that scene with the indigenous people is in the book, but in the book, the character is white. In the book, he's like a war criminal. Like, he is like been reported dead multiple times. He's wanted in most African countries. Like, he definitely, like, has fought for pro-apartheid people in some countries. At one point, it feels like the movie is making an argument that almost felt pro-poaching, where it was like, the worst thing that could happen to a person is getting caught in an American film poaching a gorilla. And I was, didn't really understand the point of that. No, the point of it is, like, that's bad because then you're, like, on the record and the whole world has seen you do this, and so then you get caught. Whereas, like, if you don't get caught on an American film poaching a gorilla, you can just poach a gorilla. Okay. you're good. I got very confused about where they were, what borders they were crossing, who they were Well, they're in Central Africa, Mark. There's There's a card that clearly says that. A lot of country names are thrown around, but the only hard location we're ever given is Central Africa. The book is specifically set in what is then Zaire. It is there because they specifically mention the Virunga region of the DRC, which at the time was called Zaire. But it seems that they fly into either Uganda, Burundi, Rwanda, or Kenya because they're very uncertain about what border they're crossing. And it feels like they're crossing at least two borders. I think they are. There's one point where it says they're in Tanzania. Okay. But, like, I'm not sure what country Delroy Lindo was in when he blackmailed them. Right, because also, Tanzania has never had a civil war like this in the movie, I'm pretty certain. So, I don't know why you would choose that country to like, stage a civil war in, because it's one of the few in Africa that hasn't. I think it's supposed to be Uganda. Okay. The geography really threw me off in this movie. How far did they walk, too? A long way. (laughs) Were they gone for months? So, okay. Congo comes out in the 1990s. Like I mentioned, it's very much in the wake of Jurassic Park. Like, the mid-90s are peak Michael Crichton, which is not to say he hadn't had great success, especially as a novelist in the 70s and 80s, but there's the one-two punch of... Jurassic Park comes out in 1993 and becomes unadjusted for inflation, the biggest box office of all time. And then Crichton also creates ER, which becomes like one of the biggest hits on television. I always so he's riding high and like he created ER because he was a doctor before he became a novelist. So at that point, it's like everything Michael Crichton has written is being adapted. Where like that's you get Congo finally after being in development hell for ages. You get a film adaptation of Sphere in like 2002. There's a movie of Timeline, which is the one where people have to travel back to like Hundred Years War era France. I have not heard of that one. I've read Andromeda Strain. Which has been adapted into TV a couple times, I think. You must watch the film of Timeline. Okay. (laughs) It's weird. The Andromeda Strain is really interesting because I'm pretty sure it's one of those movies kind of like signs where it just ends. Where it's like, oh, the aliens are allergic to water. And then it was like, oh, this space bacteria is now just gone. Yeah. But, (laughs) what? (laughs) I just read the one-line summary of Timeline. (laughs) It's so weird. I was, like, into that book in high school and watched the movie multiple times. There might be a DVD of it lying around my parents' house. Well, I will find see if I can find this on streaming somewhere. So, there's, like, this boom in Michael Crichton adaptations. This one is directed by Frank Marshall, who's usually a producer. He, along with his 
now wife Kathleen Kennedy, of course, produced a lot of Steven Spielberg's films. And this movie, like I said, had sort of languished in development hell because Crichton really insisted on using a real gorilla because he's like, it's one of the main characters. If the gorilla looks weird, nobody's going to be on board with it. Kind of like you said. They actually tried hiring research gorillas multiple times and were told no. Trying to use a gorilla in the role of Amy would be animal abuse. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So then by the time it actually got made, Crichton himself was no longer involved. And instead they hired John Patrick Shanley to write it. Who we've covered twice before on Moonstruck and Joe vs. the Volcano. And who also wrote the film Doubt. Or based on his own play. This is actually the last screenplay Shanley wrote until he adapted Doubt in 2008. What a strange run of movies. So here is John Patrick Shanley's screenwriting career. Okay? Because it's a weird list. So we've got Moonstruck in 1987. He wins an Oscar. His first film. Then we've got Five Corners, The January Man, Joe vs. the Volcano, which he also directs. It's a masterpiece. Then in 1993, he writes the screenplay for Alive, which is also directed by Frank Marshall. That's about that soccer team that crashed in the Andes. He also writes We're Back, A Dinosaur Story, the emblemation film. Oh my god. Didn't we watch that? I watched like the first 15 minutes of it and then fell asleep. Yeah. It has like Julia Child as a voice in it. It's a weird It was very strange. So then he does Alive and We're Back both in 1993. Doesn't write another movie until Congo in 95. And then after that, He doesn't write a movie until 2008 when he adapts his own play, Doubt, and he doesn't do another movie for 12 more years when he adapts his play Outside Mullingar into the 2020 film Wild Mountain Time. Did you watch it? I only read a review. Oh, did I watch it? Oh boy. It is not good and very weird. Is there only one Irish person in this movie? In Wild Mountain Time? Yeah. Yeah, Jamie Dornan's Irish. Christopher Walken is not. No. John Hamm is also not. John Hamm doesn't play an Irish person. He plays an American. Oh, okay. All I've heard is that the accents are just strange. The accents are the least of that movie's concerns. I will say, speaking of John Patrick Shanley and his writing, this is the third Shanley movie that we have watched for this podcast that talks about the romantic allure of the moon. Because, of course, it's all throughout Moonstruck. In Joe versus the Volcano, there are those wonderful shots of Joe on the raft with the big moon. And then here, Ernie Hudson tells us that the full moon makes every colobus monkey feel like Elvis during mating season. Yeah, it goes from a very romantic, almost poetic description in words to a very poetic use of cinematography to monkeys be banging. They feel like Elvis. They feel like Elvis. And they scream. So the thing is, like, the reason Congo is interesting to talk about is because it's in this window where, like, blockbusters are really taking over Hollywood, but IP hasn't yet. So weird movies like this would be thrown up as like, I don't know, maybe this will be the biggest movie of the year. So there's a ton of merchandising for Congo. Like, some of it you see also in product placement in the movie. There's a marketing deal with Taco Bell and Pepsi. It's also everywhere. They made a video game for... Sega Saturn, because this is back when every movie had a video game tie-in. They started developing games for SNES and Genesis, but they got canceled. But there was a pinball machine tie-in to the film Congo. That is probably the one that I would most understand. Yeah, it seems like a good medium for this story. Where you don't really make choices, things just kind of happen in sequence. Yeah, and sometimes the plot kind of bounces all over, like a pinball. Right, exactly. Sometimes... You build a a two-and-a-half-ton hippo robot for no reason. Why is there a hippo attack? Well, there's a hippo attack in the book, and I guess they decided that needed to stay in. Yeah, apparently the Dutch villains had to get cut, but the hippo attack was crucial to the plot. So I think the book, while not being, like, great, is quite a bit better than this movie. And a big part of it is just that, like, frankly, it makes a heck of a lot more sense because the characters have clearer goals. I will start off by saying there are no lasers in the book. So clearly it's inferior. But like many Michael Crichton books, like Rising Sun, like sort of the third plot of Jurassic Park or Prey or some of these other ones, it's an industrial espionage story where your main crew, Karen Ross, the Laura Linney character, is trying to get access to these diamonds to be used in computing technology. Like the communications cover story in this movie is the actual purpose of the diamonds. Because when it's written, it's the late 70s, and it's like, computers are about to explode. We need to be ready for the next generation of computing. And so they are, like, racing European and Japanese competitors to try to get be able to claim the diamond mine, for, like, make a corporate claim on the diamond mine first so that they can get that computing edge. And so without that being in there, 
the movie is kind of aimless because she's just on a rescue mission for this guy that we don't, for Bruce Campbell, who we don't really know. And then like the gorilla thing is totally unrelated. Whereas like in the book, she brings in the gorilla because for some reason, like she puts together that this talking gorilla might be helpful on the mission as opposed to like Dylan Walsh just wants to return the gorilla to the wild for no reason. She's sad, Will. She has nightmares. Yeah, see, in the book, the nightmares are, like, her repressed memories of this horrible place with mutated gorillas, and she does not want to go there. I That, I also feel like, didn't translate well, because she seems terrified of, like, the nightmares imply negative things, and then she's drawing what she sees in the nightmare, they're like, this is where she wants to go. Right, I mean, like... Very little with Amy makes sense. The fact that when she shows up and starts yelling, the gray mutant gorillas are all like, oh my gosh, we have to run away. When we've already seen like piles of regular gorilla skulls, like they are not scared of a normal gorilla. No, but this one has a robot arm. Oh man. Speaking of like, you know, Stan Winston developed RoboCop. According to an article in the run-up to this movie, like, during the promotional campaign, there was a newspaper article that claimed that at a February 1995 Viacom board meeting, Viacom being the parent company of Paramount, like, the head of the corporation declared, this is an alleged quote from this news article, you all know about Tom Cruise and Harrison Ford. Now I want you to meet Paramount's newest star. And then they brought in the Amy robot. Woo! Yep, I would definitely put this robot gorilla on the same acting talent as Harrison Ford. I would love to see Amy the robot gorilla, like, develop a Tom Cruise career. Like, what is Amy's Jerry Maguire? Hmm. What is Amy's Edge of Tomorrow? Well, I mean, this is Amy's Jerry Maguire because she's clearly in love with the primatologist. Well, yeah, I mean, Amy's going to be at least one of our points when we get into the romance. Um, The movie was, like I said, sort of a hit. It opened on June 9th, 1995 in first place ahead of Casper, The Bridges of Madison County, Die Hard with a Vengeance, and Braveheart. It made $24 million that weekend and went on to gross $81 million domestic against a, like, $60 million budget. Why did people want to see this? I, you know, I don't know. Big summer release? Laura Linney. You got a couple weeks till <laughs> Batman Forever comes out? Laura Linney does shoot a laser. Maybe that's the draw for other people, too. Maybe. Uh, basically, all critics hated it except for Roger Ebert, who gave it three stars what? because he said he likes this genre a lot. <laughs> the lost world genre. Yeah. I mean, so one thing that Congo as a concept had going against it is it is based off of a genre that is inherently colonialist and most of the time a racist. Right. It's a tricky genre because, like, it can be quite fun. You know, we love Indiana Jones, but it is very hard to do in a good way. And, like, the the novel Congo, especially in its introduction, um, I'm holding it up uh, in front of my camera to demonstrate the novel to Mark, because um, I've had it lying around for a couple months, <laughs> leans pretty heavily on, like, dark continent kind of language. And, like, ah, yes, you know, basically, like, untouched by man sort of thing, which is patently untrue. If you run into people there, it's not untouched by man. Right. So it, it's hard to do that sort of genre well. And they frequently tried to put this in the spirit of some of the financially and filmically and and sometimes, although not usually, uh, culturally successful versions where, like, Frank Marshall was like, oh, it's going to, like, start out like Alien with, like, harder, scary science. And then it ends up like Indiana Jones with the Lost City. And I'm like, this movie felt like neither of those. You failed on both counts there, bud. <laughs> it's, it's just dull. It's so dull for most of it. But then it's just, I mean, the thing is... The end part of it is just so wild. The problem with this movie is that there's very little tension because the screenplay does a lot of work to, like, hide everybody's motivations. So, like, we've got Tim Curry as this mysterious Romanian investor. We've got Laura Linney as this mysterious person who allegedly works for a communications company, but they built a laser. And so we don't know why anyone is doing anything except Elliot, whose goal is to return this gorilla to the jungle, which doesn't really make sense as a goal. So we're watching them wander around. We don't really care about why anyone is doing anything, which means that the actual events don't carry any weight. Like, the book also, because it has this industrial espionage thing, has, like, a very aggressive ticking clock element, and there's none of that here either. I guess the movie has the ticking clock of the volcano might explode. But they don't bring that up. Like, it feels completely out of nowhere. 
The ground shakes a couple of times, but... The fact that the volcano is just, like, exploding, and then the, they have to escape the lava at the end. I just don't understand what's going on in this movie. I will say, one of my favorite parts was when Laura Linney shot the tree with the laser to create a bridge. Great moment. Also, why does the lost city of Zinj use Egyptian hieroglyphics in, like, the rainforests of Central Africa? So, I have a couple of theories. Hieroglyphics are not in the book. One is that Zinj is a hearth of civilization and hieroglyphs diffused from Zinj to Egypt. Option two is that the mine is just entirely established by, like, King Solomon and people he's connected to. And Solomon would have had a decent amount of cultural exchange with Egyptians. Hmm. Yeah, I guess. I don't really understand. It was just like the hieroglyphic showed up and I was just like, what is happening? Oh, obviously it's nonsense. The heads on the outside looked like Olmec heads too. I like those big heads with the with the gold eyes. Yeah. <laughs> I love when Amy just flips out when she sees the gold eye. It's also like, it's some of the cases where the filmmaking just feels kind of clumsy. You know, Frank Marshall, for the most part, is not a director. But those, like, cuts closer and closer to the big eye as Amy freaks out just feels so basic. And that's in a lot of the moments that should be the most dramatic. Marshall just makes these weird choices. Like, there's the action scene when they are, like, inside the temple or whatever, and the mutant gray gorilla attacks them, and it suddenly goes into, the, like, this, like, motion blur kind of thing. For the, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Where it's almost like the image is, like, smearing, and I, I don't know if it's supposed to show that it's, like, very fast, but it just looks odd in what should be one of the first exciting moments of the movie. Yeah, it was strange. Also, I don't understand how these gorillas... So, they're bred to be miners and protectors. Primarily guards. And then, did they kill all of the inhabitants? So, the movie implies that. Okay. That they basically got so violent and so protective over the diamonds that they killed not just strangers, but anybody who was going for the diamonds. In the book, it doesn't go quite that far. It's just like, the people are gone. Maybe they were killed by other people, maybe they were killed by the gorillas, maybe they abandoned the mine for some reason, but the gorillas are still here. Okay. Do I remember correctly that the book implies that the gorilla, the white gorillas are, like, people-gorilla hybrids, too? The book does not imply that. Maybe that's a next thing? Yeah, I think that's... A lot of the Crichton books kind of blend together. Yeah, I, I mean, that's true. I could have sworn that Karen and Peter Elliot got together in this movie. And so I was expecting a bit more flirtatiousness in the film, but I was wrong. There was one scene where they kind of made eyes at each other, and that was it. Yeah. Um in the book they do not, but I thought that they might in the movie, which is why I thought we might be able to pull something out. And there is that one scene. So, I don't know, should we talk about the romance of Congo that is our primary purpose here? Yeah, I guess. Cuz I have come up with 5 points for us. Yeah, I noticed. Uh, I do want to shout out again, Tim Curry playing a weird Romanian who says that now he's escaped the evil of Chesescu is out doing good in the world. But I feel like anyone with the, a lot of money in Romania in the 90s was probably collaborating. Oh, definitely. That's just what he's saying because he's, you know, a liar. I yeah. love 90s villain Tim Curry. You know, this is not as good as, but is playing in the zone of Long John Silver in Muppet Treasure Island. I love when a movie just knows what to do with Tim Curry. And this movie really just watched Rocky Horror and was like, you know what we need in this movie about evil gorillas is some Tim Curry energy just to lift it all up. In a character who is not in the book. I figured, because when it was written, Romania was still not, or still under Chesescu, I would guess. Right, but, like, there's no version of this character, like, the person who believes in the lost city of Zinj and, like, wants to get there. Like, it is just this expedition going for these diamonds to beat the other diamond expeditions. Like, there's no, like, pseudo-historian, like, Nicolas Cage and National Treasure kind of figure. Keep it simple, stupid. Crichton does have a good, uh, pretty good tendency when he does his industrial espionage books to have, like, multiple plots and multiple people with different goals. But at the end of the day, they are all just after the same thing, which allows you to keep track of it better. Right, exactly. Whereas this is just, like, bursting with random characters who don't really do anything. We've got the Tim Curry character who's pretty strange. 
Although, in the version of the movie that's exi- that exists, he's needed for financing for the expedition. But we've also got, like, Joe Pantoliano as, like, the guy who sneaks <laughs> you into countries. What was he Like, doing wearing there? his Hawaiian shirt. So, he seems to work for the communications company, which is almost Which may or implied, may not be a weapons company. Yeah, which is implied to be more of, like, a gun-running company. Yeah, seems like it. That has space lasers, but also handheld lasers that are strong enough to reach space. All right. Okay. We got to talk about the romance. Yeah. So, Will, every week we break down the romantic plot line or plot lines into five points. And I'm very curious. What are the five points of this movie that you managed to come up with? Okay. So, there's not a lot of romance in Congo, but that's okay because we don't care if romance is the main plot or not. So, we're going to work our way through the points of Congo, which I'm assuming is not at all well clipped on YouTube. So for introducing points, I'll probably put, like, a gorilla roar or something. So point number one. In our prologue sequence, Charlie, played by Bruce Campbell, finds his way to what we later learn is the lost city of Zinge, the mines of King Solomon. And he's doing a radio transmission back to the corporate base. I don't know where it is. In the book, it's in Texas. And then suddenly he goes missing. They stop transmitting. Yeah, because a guy decides to swim into a pool of water which is pretty cool yeah so he, he like swims discovers under, the lost city and then the guy swims under and then they find diamonds that power lasers because he manages to demonstrate the laser shooting right which means a decent number of people at this company are in on the laser plan yeah so he demonstrates that and then all of a sudden it stops transmitting things look dicey gorillas may or may not be involved yeah there's some flashes that look like apes There's a lot of debate in the book about whether or not they're gorillas and spending a lot of time digging into that. Because the gorillas make these, like, sounds that are supposed to be distinct from gorilla roars. And so they, like, get a team of linguists working on it to try to decipher it as language. It's like a whole thing. You definitely have more room for that in a book. That is one cut that I think Frank Marshall can stand by. No, it's a a good cut. Um, Here's one thing that I learned from the credits that threw me. So... We learned that Charlie, Bruce Campbell, who's gone missing, used to be engaged to Laura Linney. Right. And she clearly still has, like, strong feelings for him, and she cares that he has disappeared. I only learned from the credits that Bruce Campbell is playing the boss's son. Yeah, they mentioned that. Okay, I did not pick up on that. Yeah, they mentioned that it's, she says, like, he's your son, and I loved him at one point, or something like that. Okay. Because that just makes it, like, even more cartoonishly evil how much the boss does not care about what happened to him. The boss is truly, truly out there. He does not care that his son died at all. He doesn't care about family. He doesn't care about people. He just cares about powering his lasers. He's like a Captain Underpants villain. Diamonds. All he wants are his diamonds. The level to which he was so apathetic about his son's death was just... In a movie with mutated white gorillas that attack people. That is up there as one of the least believable parts of it. Yeah. All right. Anyway, that's point number one. Point number two. Uh, This is a different pairing. We're going to be jumping between pairings. Point number two uh, is between Karen Ross or Laura Linney and uh, Dylan Walsh, who plays Peter Elliott. And uh, he, not long after they arrive in the Congo, gets a leech stuck in his pants Somewhere in the crotch region. In his boxers. And he is wearing the largest boxers. And that kind of made me realize maybe at least a boxer brief in the jungle. A bit more protection around that area. Yeah, well, he is clearly not the jungle expert. That's that's what Ernie Hudson told them early on. Oh, Ernie Hudson. So, anyway, he gets a leech attached to his junk. And he's trying to get people... To help him take it off. And he offers Laura Linney, like, hey, will you help me? And I don't know, it felt kind of flirty. It did. Both then, and then after the fact, like, after he used Ernie Hudson's cigarette to burn the leech off, she gave him this kind of look like, oh, I know you have genitalia now. And they were, so they were fighting earlier in the movie, too, which led me to believe that they would then flirt more and he would help her get over the death of her ex-fiance. So it was because of the ex-fiance that I wasn't entirely convinced they were going to get together. Because if if Bruce Campbell had just been a random guy, then it would have felt like the movie was setting it up. Because there's another conversation later where they're just, like, talking about equipment, but the way she's like, yeah, I pack really well, like... 
also felt like some kind of weird euphemism, except that she was spending the whole movie trying to get back to her beloved ex-fiance. I wonder if there was a draft of the script where they ended up together. I would believe Because these are such flirty moments. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's point number two. <laughs> the flirtation that goes nowhere. Point number three. Uh, we're like an hour and 15 minutes into this movie because it takes us so long to get to the gorillas. I wanted so much more in the lost city of Zinge. Mark, it was really important that we get that two and a half ton hippo robot. They could have had so many more gorillas. They could have had at least two more big white gorillas instead of those two giant hippo robots. I'm going to be posting that Stan Winston stuff. You're going to have to look at some of the designs for the white gorillas because they designed like a bunch of unique looks that you can't really see in the movie. They look good. I thought those guys looked pretty good because they were very scary. Yeah, they're cool. All right, point number three. Basically, the entire movie has taken place. They've found the lost city of Zinj. They've started fighting some white gorillas. They've emerged in King Solomon's mines. So overloaded with diamonds, they're just lying loose on the ground all over the place. Because that's how diamonds work. My theory is that, like, those are, like, diamonds that had been looted in the past. And the people, like, people, like, took them out and then got killed by the gorillas on the floor there. Yeah, that makes sense. So... Tim Curry's taking diamonds, the mutated white gorillas attack, they're fighting their way back, they go through this doorway into a giant geode. So, the other thing that I found really interesting is the book makes it very clear that these diamonds are fairly worthless for jewelry. So, what's Tim Curry gonna do with these diamonds? Because they are mostly useful for, like, electronic applications. I don't know, it's the 90s, like... That's a lucrative business, too. He's going to sell them to Intel. I feel like a company can't just stumble into a mine like this and claim ownership of it. Wouldn't the country that it's in have a bigger claim to the diamond mine than whatever company finds it first? This is another space where, like, part of the, like, industrial race thing in the book is all about, like, Congolese laws related to mining claims. Yeah, that does sound like something Michael Crichton would get into. Yeah. So anyway, as I said, Laura Linney climbs into a gigantic geode, and inside it, she finds the dead body of Bruce Campbell holding his giant laser. R.I.P. And she's sad, because this is the man she loved, and he died with no one to hold except his giant diamond-powered laser. Oh, boy. Uh, Point four! So they get out. They escape the monkeys because they decide they're afraid of Amy for no reason. Amy the gorilla with the robot voice. The smallest gorilla, too. Right. But they decide that while they've never been afraid of any gorilla before, they're afraid of this one. They all leave. Laura Linney calls up her boss and is like, yo, I found your son, Bruce Campbell. He's dead. And the boss is like, but did you get the diamond? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My son died. So sad. But did you get the diamonds? Diamonds! So Laura Liddy gets really pissed then where she's like, I told you, if this is about diamonds and not about Charlie, I would make you pay. And so then using her like GPS technology, she triangulates the location of this satellite, like the communication satellite that his company uses because they only use one. She points this handheld diamond powered laser into the sky shoots it up and destroys a satellite in orbit it was less believable than the death star explosion it's so funny that's the point in the movie when i yelled yeah that was insane and i loved it it's the best choice the movie made. <laughs> it is the best moment of the movie uh after that point five it feels like the movie is implying amy is gonna bang that silverback gorilla Probably. Also, throughout the movie, people have making jokes that Amy and Peter Elliot are married. Yes. Because he does everything for her. But that is because she is a gorilla and needs attention. Exactly. Gotta be tickled. She loves to be tickled. She's really into being tickled and drinking martinis. Anyway, so Will, do you find the romance of Congo believable? Who knows? (laughs) There's like nothing here. It's honestly so difficult to rate. I guess it makes sense that she would go look for her dead lover and then be sad sad about it. And then maybe lash out at people who don't care. It's also believable that two people could flirt and that a gorilla would have sex with another gorilla. Is this a 10? (laughs) Unfortunately, I think I see absolutely no reason to dock this movie. Congo's a 10! (laughs) Congo is a 10, people. (laughs) It's a perfectly believable romance. (laughs) Now, is the romance worth our time? 
Not really. Does the movie change much if Charlie is just her friend? No, it does not. There's no reason for any of this movie to exist. Like, it doesn't even make sense if you're like, well, her motivation is stronger if it's her former lover. It's like, the motivation is barely there anyway. No, she. it's very easy for to believe that a former CIA operative with field skills would undertake this mission to go get the diamonds. I don't know why it can't be about the diamonds. Hey, she left the CIA because they're a loveless bunch of SOBs. Yeah, and this co- this company definitely- They're loveless! Se- this company seems full of love. Um- do you think that Karen or Charlie is dateable? I would date Karen just to get access to that space laser. <laughs> like, book Karen, I would not date. This Karen seems better. Yeah. Like, no one is a person in this movie. Yeah. Uh, Charlie, who knows? Who knows? He seems nice enough. Yeah. Uh, do you think they'd stay together? No, Charlie's dead. Nope, Charlie is dead. And also, when they were both alive, they did not stay together. Yes. So if you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would you choose? Oh, man. Like, so few options. I mean, I think it has to be Peter Elliot, the primatologist. He's like the only one who's not a criminal. Yeah, he's the only one that is not willing to commit crimes against humanity and other high-level political crimes to get access to diamonds. Yeah, like, Ernie Hudson is the best and most fun performance, but he is definitely a war criminal. And a poacher. Yeah, and, like, I'm kind of vibing with Joe Pantoliano. Like, I don't understand it, but, but he is I enjoyed it. a war criminal. He's definitely a war criminal. So, Peter Elliott it is. Yep. Now, Will, many of the movies we have covered have been adapted to the stage musical. Should there be a Broadway musical version of the film Congo? Absolutely not, but I desperately want it. <laughs> that is exactly my thought process. In no like, way should you I adapt see this. It. I want to. I want to hear Amy's "I Want" song in a robot voice. I want to see people in gorilla costumes come out and attack. Like I, I could not wait for like the final song as they're like in an um, like a hot air balloon thing on stage, like slowly lifting off the stage as. We hear a reprise, you know, with some new lyrics like you hear at the end of the show as they all sing like, I'm sure glad I went to the Congo. They told me I should not go. We may not have found the diamonds, though. We sure did learn a lot. Uh, So don't do it. But if you do do it, please give me free front row tickets. We will be there opening night. Oh, my God. Well, we did it. We watched Congo. We watched Congo! We are nothing if not men of our words. So, uh, anyway, Mark, you know, this is our first episode of 2021. 2020 is officially over. So I thought we should take a moment to uh, look back at the weird, weird year in film that it was. Yeah, so it was a strange year. Strange year for my mental health. Uh, For increased amounts of time at home, my attention span was shot. So oh, absolutely. movie watching became much more difficult. So my, I was unable to create a top 10, but I do have my top five. Okay. I put mine together like a serial killer where I printed out a list of every movie that I watched this year, every new release that I watched this year, cut them up into little pieces of paper, and then was like moving them around into rankings on a table. So I have my top 10. I also will probably want to run quickly through my bottom 10 because there were some real doozies this year. Yeah, I do want to hear about the bottom 10. Okay, so as always, we will run down our favorite movies of the year. Um, if you are looking for something to watch besides all the reality TV we've recommended on the podcast over the last couple months, uh, these are some good things to watch. But also, reality TV, I would highly recommend anything we have recommended. It's all good. I think I'm on my 15th season of Survivor since quarantine started. Oh my god. It's been doing some good work for me. Yeah, I mean, that is a very good way to kill a lot of time. Yeah. All right. All right. So uh, do you want to go first or should I? Sure. I guess we can bounce back and forth. Yeah, I could go first. Do you want to start with our number 10 slash number five and then work yeah, our way I'll start up? Yeah, 10. Okay. So my number five is a movie that I can guarantee is not on your top 10 list, nor would it be on anyone's top 10 list if they had seen more than 10 movies this year. But I did enjoy it. It is the Netflix Eurovision movie. 
Sure, a good movie. Which was very entertaining. I really enjoyed the music in it. Rachel McAdams doing great work. And it also... One of our finest comic actors, Rachel McAdams. Very true. And it also had Nadja from What We Do in the Shadows, the TV show in it. That one's really good. I have not narrowed anything down besides like a top 10 list because the Oscars are weird this year and stuff is eligible through February. But Dan Stevens is going to make a real play for supporting actor on my list for that movie. He was so funny in that movie. He's so good. Um, also, speaking of, like, Oscar stuff, you know, we are not professional critics, so have not seen The Father or Minari or Nomadland or Promising Young Woman or anything else that has just shown at festivals or in-person theaters. Yeah. I very much want to watch Promising Young Woman, but I will not be risking going to a theater to do so. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, uh, maybe I'll do two back and forth for each of your one. Sure. Uh, so my number 10 is Another Round which is a Danish movie starring Mads Mikkelsen, who's awesome in it. All right. I'm intrigued. (laughs) So he plays a teacher, a high school history teacher. So you're starting to see why this resonated with me. And he and three of his teacher friends, I think one of them teaches music, one is a PE teacher, the other one teaches psychology. They're all feeling kind of adrift in their lives. And the psych one had recently read a study that actually humans perform at a higher level if they're just slightly buzzed. And so they decide to liven up their lives by just maintaining a minor level of drunkenness all the time. Huh. That sounds like it would be cumulatively awful. Yes. And so the movie is, like, quite funny and kind of sad at times. But it's easy to imagine, like, the American version of this going for, like, everyone ruins their lives and, like, very simple lessons learned at the end of the movie. And this doesn't. It allows things to be messy in a way that I appreciated and is also a lot of fun. And Mickelson is just fantastic in it. He's always good. He's always good, but like, this is really great. If you want to have fun, actually, he did a great interview, I think with Mike Ryan, where he's just like far ranging talking about different products he's worked on. And in another place where I felt kinship, he talked about how he's wanted to set up a shelf of all the action figures of different characters he's played. Um, but he doesn't think his wife would go for it. I think that's the same interview where he said he didn't recognize Jerry Bruckheimer twice. <laughs> that was an incredible interview. <laughs> All right. So what is your right, so number that, nine? My number nine is uh, Let Them All Talk on HBO Max. I got Which is the newest it. Steven Soderbergh movie. It's Sorry? I gotta see it. It's Meryl Streep on a boat. Okay. For those of you who don't know about Let Them All Talk, it's the new Soderbergh movie. I love Steven Soderbergh. We should do more of his movies on here. But it is... Meryl Streep, Candice Bergen, Diane Wiest, Gemma Chan, and Lucas Hedges all on a boat. On a real, actual cruise ship making a transatlantic crossing. The premise of the movie is that Meryl Streep's character is this acclaimed author who's going to be given a Lifetime Achievement Award in the UK, but she cannot fly on planes. So she convinces her agency to get her this crossing for herself and her friends. And they filmed it on an actual transatlantic crossing with just, like, random people in the background who are on the cruise. And they did one of those things where they have, like, a 50-page, like, treatment, but then a lot of the scenes are improvised. It feels very lived in and very fun. It's, It's just a blast. Like, Mark, you liked Book Club. And this has a sort of Book Club energy, but operating at a much higher level. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to operate at a lower level than Book Club. I I will acknowledge the flaws of that film. But, like, Book Club is doing exactly what it needs to do. I really want to check this out. Highly recommend it. It's streaming on HBO Max. It's a blast. All right. My number four is a movie that I had forgotten came out in 2020 because I watched it at home. Birds of Prey. Great movie! That was in my top 20. That movie was very fun. I loved watching that sandwich get made, as with everyone else. No film has ever shot a sandwich as lovingly as Birds of Prey. That scene was incredible. I really enjoyed the style of it. It's live-action Looney Tunes. It is. And it was just very entertaining. Also, Rosie Perez is in it. And she's never bad. (laughs) She's never bad. Did you watch The Flight Attendant? I have not yet. Okay, would recommend Rosie Perez is in it. There's a chance that the next season will be about Rosie Perez even more, fingers crossed, if it gets another season. Birds of Prey is a movie I practically dreaded seeing because I have liked so little of the DC films, and it is just a blast. It was just so fun. All right. Um, next up for me, my number eight movie is the new adaptation of Emma. Uh, with... Starring uh, Anya Taylor-Joy. I love her. And another great supporting actor performance, Bill Nye plays her dad and is so 
funny. A couple of his lines were used as punchlines in the trailer, but there's so much still in the movie where he is doing this sort of like stern on the side Jane Austen older character thing, but he's got timing that's just unbelievable. And the whole thing feels very lively. You know, I love a lot of Jane Austen adaptations. The Joe Wright Pride and Prejudice is great, but this one just has so much fun energy. I mean, it's Emma. It's supposed to do that. And I think it does a great job. So then uh, my number seven is a movie we discussed on this podcast. It's Palm Springs. That I will be discussing later. Yeah. uh, I will leave some of that for you then. I just want to say again that it's a ton of fun and a really inventive and original rom-com. And that's exciting to see executed so well, because when we get to my bottom 10, we will see some unoriginal rom-coms. All right, so my number three is a very recent release. It is Pixar's Soul, out now on Disney+. Plus. I have read a lot of the criticisms about Disney's history with black bodies, and I understand them, but I did really enjoy the movie, and I thought that the message was very nice, especially as someone who is in the middle of a very prolonged and painful job hunt that your life exists outside of what you do. And I really liked the message. I thought it was very fun. And I loved the animation. Some of the lighting, like there's a scene where the mom just walks from one lighting to like a stream of light coming in from a window. And you can see the change was so cool. There's a lot of stuff like that in Toy Story 4 that's really well done too. And like that kind of thing is where you see why Pixar is still the gold standard in digital animation. Yeah, it's been a while since I watched a Pixar movie. I think Toy Story 4 probably would have been the last one. And every time I'm still blown away by how much better they are. Yeah, there's an attention to making the film look like art. Right. Like, it really just wants the film to be very pretty. And especially in this year where, you know, been inside so much, it is such a lovingly rendered New York City. I wanted, it made me want to go to New York so bad. Yeah. I And I also, you know, in the, the before place, all of the work there with uh, the different Jerry's and our true king of 2020, Terry the Accountant, is just I so imaginatively done. the queen done. of 2020. Terry's the bomb. I love Terry. I actually did not have uh, either of Pixar's 2020 releases in my top 10 this year. I am really partial to Onward, which is one of the last movies I saw in person in theaters. I think it's a movie that looks really simple, but is really smartly crafted. I really do need to check that out. But again, (laughs) maybe someday. Yeah. Alrighty, so then it, we're up to my sixth movie, which is another one that you might enjoy. Um, you know, bouncing around a lot of streaming services for the list this year, given the year that it is. You know, Palm Springs is on Hulu. Let them all talk on HBO Max. Um, my number six is on Apple TV Plus, and that's Wolfwalkers. Is that good? I've read good things. It's awesome. I really like this style of animation. I thought it looked really cool. So I was planning on activating my free Apple TV Plus subscription at some point to watch that. I just need to maximize my timing. Yeah, so it's by an Irish animation studio, Cartoon Saloon, which had previously done sort of other Irish folklore things like The Secret of Kells. And it is just wonderful to look at, a very different kind of animation than the kind of thing we typically get in the United States these days. And it's set in Ireland during the period of Oliver Cromwell's protectorate. And so it's about this tension, in, in a way, a sort of imperialist colonization tension between sort of the magical forces of native Ireland and the civilizing force of the early English empire. And it's just really lovely and very sweet. I think you'll like it a lot. That sounds very up my alley. Yeah. Uh, Wolfwalkers is great. Um, you can get a free trial of Apple TV Plus for a week. I highly recommend it. There's a lot of other good stuff on there, too. Actually, another movie that I'll be talking about. And, of course, the best TV show of 2020, Ted Lasso. All right. Am I up? No. Um, No, I got to do my five. Okay. Uh, My number five is on a different streaming service. On Amazon Prime Video, you can watch the recording of Heidi Schreck's play, What the Constitution Means to Me, which is quite powerful. I did not realize that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's not quite a one-woman show. There are two other performers who are involved in it as well, but it's mostly just her on stage. She, when uh, when she was in high school, Heidi Schreck participated in speaking competitions where she would travel around and give speeches on the Constitution of the United States. And these were put on by, I believe, the VFW, one of those sort of patriotic veteran organizations. And so the whole play is loosely structured around those kinds of speeches that she would give, but she also talks about the way that the U.S. Constitution and who is included and who is not and sort of changing meanings of it over the course of time have affected her and the women in her family going back over the past several generations. It's quite moving. 
And then at the end, it's a whole lot of fun where she brings in a present-day high schooler who does these debates today. And the two of them have a debate on whether or not to keep or reject the U.S. Constitution in 2020. Whoa. Um, and that's the thing they would do in the stage show every night, and they would just randomly draw for sides and go back and forth. Like I said, the filmed version of it is on Prime Video, and it is really quite something. Wow. Uh, all right, so my number two, which I wouldn't be surprised if is on your list, is Netflix's Mank. Mank! Mank! It actually just, it's like my 12. I really enjoyed Mank. I thought Amanda Seyfried was giving an incredible performance. She's my winner for supporting actors. As Marion Davies. Just out of this world. Charles Dant showed up as Hearst. It was much more fun than I was expecting. I thought it would be- It's zippy! It is surprisingly zippy! I was like, oh, it's a black and white two-hour-plus movie on Netflix about old Hollywood. I think I will enjoy it, but it will feel a bit like homework. But it was actually just like a hootin' and hollerin' zippy ride for a lot of it. It's a lot of fun. And, like, one criticism that people have thrown out is, like, Herman Mankiewicz died in his 40s and Gary Oldman is, like, 65. But if you look at a picture of Herman Mankiewicz, the man looked old. Yeah, I think those 40 years probably aged him a little quickly based off of how he lived his life. Yeah, Mank is a lot of fun. I wonder how well it plays to someone who's not familiar with Citizen Kane. I, yes. having I have seen and enjoyed Citizen Kane, so I definitely do think that is one of the reasons I liked it. And then I also am very interested in the history of like that time in general in Hollywood and in politics. Like the fact that Bill Nye played Upton Sinclair running for the governor of California. Yeah, which is one of those things that feels like a minor thread. But when you're thinking about the larger thematic points that the movie is making, that 1934 gubernatorial election is really interesting. It was very cool. Also, it was great to just hear Bill Nye's voice shouting about, like, Upton Sinclair talking points in the distance. Um, I loved Bank, and it was much more fun than I was expecting. Yeah, like you, I was like, this will be good, but it'll be homework, and it wasn't. I also want to shout out, we've talked about a couple of good performances. I think Tom Burke is very good as Orson Welles in just a couple of scenes. Yeah, he does. It's a tough role to play, but you really buy it. He has that deep, magnificent Orson Welles voice and just this sense of drama that he (laughs) carries around with him. Yes, everything is elevated because nothing in Orson Welles' life was just normal. Hey, you don't get to be Optimus Prime by being normal. (laughs) All right, Will, you're number four. My number four is another filmed version of a stage show. It's on Disney+, Plus. it's Hamilton. Like, it's not a surprising pick. It is what it is. Hamilton's great. It was great when I saw it four years ago. It's still great. And I think the filmed version of it is actually pretty well done. Um, Having taken this year to watch some other filmed Broadway musicals, I think sometimes they struggle with the balance between conveying what it looks like as a stage show and also giving a unique filmed experience. And I think Hamilton does that pretty darn well. Number three. Number three is my other Apple TV Plus pick. It's a documentary that you can find there that I highly recommend called Boys State. And it is a documentary about the 2018 Texas Boys State, which is a thing where kids from all over Texas come together and they form political parties and they come up with political platforms and then they run for state-level offices like uh, party chairs and governor and things like that. And so this documentary follows these kids as they are randomly sorted into parties, like made-up parties. Then those parties have to come together and decide on a platform and then choose candidates and run campaigns. And it is just fascinating watching the decisions these kids make, how they're informed by their own partisan leanings, uh, how they sometimes choose to go against their own partisan leanings for strategic boys' state purposes. This is 2018. There's a big scandal that happens when somebody digs up a picture of one of the main candidates at a March for Our Lives protest. It is just fascinating and incredibly compelling. Um, And if you're looking for a political documentary, I think that's by far the best one that came out this year. I guess that brings me to my number one, which I referenced earlier, but it is the only movie I've watched twice this year, which is Palm Springs. Great movie. It was Great choice for a double watch. Just, I mean, it was so fun the second time around, too, seeing all of the things you miss, because I went in, again, knowing nothing, so I wasn't paying attention to, like, pick up on any of the time loop stuff or anything. So it was fun to just see all the stuff I missed the first time around, and I still absolutely lost it when J.K. Simmons shot him with an arrow. One of the funniest moments in a movie of a long time to me. Yeah. So my last two, uh, my second place 
Streaming on Netflix, Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. Just a wild movie. There's a ton packed into it. It is overstuffed in a way that would feel frustrating if it were directed by anybody but Spike Lee. But he does it with so much confidence that it just winds up feeling exciting. Um, I talked about this some actually on our School Days episode. But the way that he uses different kinds of media, cutting back and forth between actual footage from the Vietnam War and, you know, pieces of American entertainment from the last 50 years, but also telling the story of these black Vietnam veterans who decades later have returned to retrieve the body of their beloved commander who died during the war and they buried him and they've gone back to retrieve him, uh, who is played in flashback by Chadwick Boseman in an incredible performance. Just truly remarkable. I think one of the best performances of the year. Uh, Bozeman is Storm and Norman. And it gets into like all of the messy ways that the war has and has not impacted them in the decades since. And the ways that they have wrestled with their status as black veterans in the time since then. And then also in Vietnam, the legacy of the war for the people living there. Uh, it's not a movie with easy answers. But it has a lot of really compelling questions and engages with them really well. So I, I really highly recommend The Five Bloods. And then my number one. Gotta be First Cow, Kelly Reichardt's movie about the first cow taken to the Oregon country in the 1840s. Literally, of course, because cows are not native to North America. So it is this wealthy man who has a cow brought out to Oregon so that he can have milk in his tea. But the movie's not really about the cow. It's about these two men, one of them a cook from an expedition to the West and the other a Chinese immigrant to the Pacific Coast. And it's a very quiet, um, frankly, affectionate movie just about male friendship on the frontier. And there's a cow. And it, it's just, like, very sweet and lovely. And I had a, a wonderful evening spending time in that version of the West. It was a very cute cow, too. It's a good cow. So what's going on with that, actually? Um, this is a spoiler. You know, skip ahead a minute. If you don't want a minor spoiler for first cow, the main character, Cookie, is in the middle of the night, stealing milk from the cow to make biscuits that he then sells. Okay, now I'm very excited to hear about your worst movies of the year. Okay, yeah, like I said, I put together a list of my worst movies. This is also good because normally here we would do a game where I would have Mark guess the box office of the calendar year. Not but happening. We did, that. <laughs> we did that in July with our Palm Springs episode, and it hasn't changed that much. So um, I actually will shout out my bottom 11 movies. The, uh, the worst of the worst. So going from 11, 11th worst to most worst. Some of these I've mentioned on the podcast before. Uh, number 11 is Warner Brothers Scoob. Scoob. I can't the believe you watched animated Scoob. Scooby-Doo movie. Where Scooby-Doo goes it, to hell. It is clearly trying to start an interconnected Hanna-Barbera cinematic universe, and I really hope that does not happen. I have a feeling it won't. Yeah. Uh, number 10, John Patrick Shanley's Wild Mountain Time. Very fitting for Congo. Uh, this is a movie that, like, you know, there is a reveal that just has to be seen to be believed. Uh, now I um, want to watch it, it. Look, don't pay a $20 rental for it. But if it hits free streaming at some point, maybe turn it on. I no longer want to watch it. <laughs> it is an unbelievable reveal. I don't know that it's worth getting there. It is uh, adapted from a play, and it's pretty clear to see how it would be better as a play. I mean, that's such a damning statement of a movie, honestly. All right. Uh, number nine is uh, Robert Downey Jr. in Doolittle, a movie that I saw in theaters this year. Oh, boy. We've uh, discussed this movie in the past, I believe. Yes, we've di uh, discussed the fact that Doolittle has to give a dragon an enema to get out the oversized bagpipes that have been stopping it from being able to poop. Number eight is uh, Netflix's Love Guaranteed, which is a rom-com, and it's no good. Number seven, the long-delayed The New Mutants, the whimper with which the Fox X-Men movies ended after being delayed for, like, three years. Uh, number six is Disney Plus's Stargirl, the adaptation of the Jerry Spinelli novel. Uh, that is, for some reason, a musical. I have not heard of this at all. Yeah, keep it that way. Uh, number five is Enola Holmes on Netflix, which is long and boring. There is... Uh, one good scene where Millie Bobby Brown is pretending to be drowned and gives a truly bizarre wink to the camera before turning around and beating somebody up. Uh, number four is the Christian music biopic, I Still Believe. Why did you watch that? Um, sometimes I would get together uh, on Zoom uh, with a couple people and watch bad movies and play drinking games. And that is why I watched most of these movies. 
All right. <laughs> uh, I still believe is a truly reprehensible film. Uh, number three, soon to be covered on this podcast, Pool Boy Nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that came out this year. Uh, number, I should have added it to my list. Yeah, can't wait to talk about that. Number two, The Secret, Dare to Dream, the fiction movie based on the book The Secret. Oof. Is Katie Holmes just poor because she doesn't want money hard enough? Maybe. And number one, the worst movie of 2020, Disney's adaptation of Artemis Fowl. I think we've discussed that movie enough in the past. I really don't want to relitigate it. (laughs) So uh, there you go. Avoid those movies. Or maybe you could tweet out which ones are worth watching drunk. Yeah. I think that's about it for this week. Uh, Remember, we watched the film Congo. (laughs) Yes. Congo! Next week, I'm very excited. We're returning to the world of DreamWorks animations with a surprise film, The Croods. Or, not surprise, but surprisingly enjoyable, The Croods. So if you haven't seen it, check it out. The Croods is on Netflix, and it is fun. That's worth your time. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at LoveTheLovePod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at LoveTheLovePod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help new people to find the show. All right, William. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Congo? Oh, boy. If you think someone you love is in danger, see if you can help. Lasers. Pew, 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 pew. Oh no, the satellite is falling out of the sky. It just crushed a gorilla. (laughs) Oh no. All right, there you go. Till next time, I'm Gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. It's a jungle out there, so hold on tight. You're about to see how I spend my night. I'll be the king you wanted. You'll be the queen I need. And on and on and on and on. Let's